0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your periodic look at what's going on in the world of evidence-based medicine. So you're listening to this after what's been dubbed Freedom Day by politicians in the UK, though we're recording just before that. Uh, yep, on the 19th of July, we're seeing restrictions that have been put in place for the whole pandemic lifted. Uh, no more social distancing, no more legally mandated mask use. There's a lot to talk about there. And today we're going to focus on two things that might be relevant to that. Firstly, lateral flow tests. Track and trace is essential to controlling the pandemic thus far, and potentially even in populations with high vaccination rates as new variants start whizzing around the world. So we'll be looking at some new research into how well LFTs perform. Uh, Secondly, the football has shown that events might still be big drivers of infections. And uh, the government ran some test programmes of events. But what were they actually testing? We'll find out. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen McDonald. Hi Helen.
1: Hi Duncan. I've changed slightly since last time. Usually I tell you I'm UK research editor, but every so often at BMJ, um all the clinical editors shuffle around, so I am now research integrity editor.
0: And what And arresting, and GP. arresting GP. What what does the integrity editor do?
1: I was hoping you weren't going to ask <laughs> me that because I don't feel I fully grasped that myself. <laughs> but um, I look at um, publication queries about uh, ethical matters and complaints um, and look at some of the policies that um, hopefully keep us sending good content your way, whether that's uh, audio or written content.
0: So uh, potentially a lot then to feed into this podcast in the future. I think that'll be interesting. Another point of view that we're always very glad to have is Joe Ross. Joe, welcome back to the pod. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Any change in your job titles?
2: No, neither moved, nor promoted, nor shifted around. I remain uh, the U.S. outreach and research editor at the BMJ, in addition to all the hats I wear at my university job. At
0: so yes, as I said at the beginning of this, this is freedom day in the uk and there are a lot of opinions around this there's a letter in the lancet an open letter that has thousands of signatures from concerned people um now helen i often sort of take what is going on in the general public from the chats that you have with fellow parents uh, outside your school <laughs> um have you been having lots of questions about about freedom day
1: I think what's most on people's mind at the moment certainly within the UK as we're being hit with this delta wave at the school gate is the school bubbles. <laughs> and the fact that if a child goes down um in a particular form or year group depending on how things are arranged then then everyone's got to got to be out of school and isolating for a chunk of time and that, that is really impacting on people's lives at the moment both the lives and education of children and also the working and home lives of of, um, of parents um, which is what attracted me to these papers in part uh, on testing
0: because mm, that's been a, a big thing in schools over here Joe uh, giving kids quick rapid diagnostic tests to see if, uh, if they have COVID or not um, but then <laughs> Lots of uh, questions about how good those tests are.
1: And it's also a good way to return to what was, I would say, sort of around this time last year, a kind of um, almost obsessional level of interest of mine, which was around um, various tests for COVID. And we had various um, conversations and interviews, particularly with John Deeks back at that time, um, as some data was emerging on the lab-based accuracy of some of these um tests, lateral flow tests. Um, And I think a clear message that we heard at that time was that there was a need for bigger studies to be done in sort of real populations. And that is why I was so excited, although perhaps I have over-pinned my <laughs> hopes on this particular study <laughs> um, that was published in BMJ in July, looking at the results of um, this Liverpool study that was done to look at the diagnostic accuracy of lateral flow tests using the Innova test versus polymerase chain reaction testing, so the PCR testing, in asymptomatic people who presented to testing centres um, without the three core symptoms in the UK of COVID, which are cough, fever, or um, altered sense of smell or taste. Are you with me?
0: I think so. I mean, it feels like we're we're doing this a bit late. It would have been good to have this earlier. But uh, does that, does this answer your questions that you have?
1: So, so they took over 18s um, in Liverpool at that time, there was a surge of um, COVID um, emerging. So it was back in November Um, and they did a a kind of public health campaign to say, come forwards and get tested um, if you don't have those symptoms. So whether they're totally asymptomatic people or minimally symptomatic people or people with slightly odd symptoms, which may or may, may not have been COVID, we don't fully know, but they get these um, two tests done, the standard PCR test and the, lateral flow tests. So I'll give you the results. They, they saw just under 7,000 people, 6,800 people. Amidst that, just for a sense of scale here, there are 70 positive PCR tests and there are 31 positive lateral flow tests and a handful of void results in, in either of those camps. Um, so despite the kind of surge that was going on, there were still relatively few positive cases that we can kind of um, study here. And when you exclude those void results, what they found is that the lateral flow test versus the PCR test showed a sensitivity of around 40% with the confidence interval stretching from 28 up to 52% and a specificity of 99.9% with a pretty tight confidence interval around that. So what that sort of means is that lateral flow tests or these lateral flow tests detected four in ten people approximately who were tested positive by PCR. Um so then the question is does that matter? And we'll kind of come back to that. But first I wanted to hear from Ian Bucken, who was one of the authors of the paper He's an executive dean of the Institute of Population Health at the University of Liverpool, and by training, he's a public health doctor. And I just wanted him to talk us through the study from his perspective, um, because if nothing else, him and his team have done what everyone else seemed to be finding very difficult to do at the start of the pandemic, which is to actually get some research off the ground and produce some evidence. Tell us a bit more about what you, what you actually did in the study, how you set it up.
3: In five days, with military assistance, testing centres were set up around Liverpool. A communications campaign was put together very, very quickly uh, with the help of local community leaders. And a quarter of the population came forward under the tagline, let's all get tested. In the first month. So that was from the 6th of December. We started planning at the end, the last day in October, at the weekend, and it was going by the Friday. 6,300 people were identified as infected with SARS CoV 2 uh, but not declaring any symptoms. So if we assume that they were asymptom- largely asymptomatic individuals, they didn't know that they were carrying the virus could pass it on, and were able to. Self isolate uh, via testing that wasn't otherwise available.
1: And so, what triggered them to present themselves just if they were concerned?
3: So, we used a mixed methods approach. We went out and did focus groups with communities, say, Well, why did you get tested? We ran questionnaires at the testing centres. A sense of duty, so civic duty, helping your fellow resident, a sense of pride in your city doing something for the first time in the world uh, was a big motivator a barrier was fear of loss of income if you had to isolate so those in in more disadvantaged areas uh, were more likely to get COVID and less likely to get tested Mm. that was an important finding we anticipated that that would be the case
1: and you did um In this study, you compare the accuracy of um, one of the lateral flow testing um, kits to uh, PCR testing, which you're using in this sense as the gold standard test. Talk us a bit through um, the utility of that comparison.
3: So if we're looking at sensitivity, uh, you've got greater sensitivity, particularly in the early stages of infection from PCR but I have to wait one or two days to get the result. And that's one or two days when people could be passing on the virus. If my objective is not to make a clinical diagnosis, but to take a public health action, then that timing really matters. So sensitivity and specificity and predictive values in isolation from the time it takes to get a test result doesn't give me the answer I need in a public health scientific or practical way is I am trying to optimize that mathematical function of one over time to percentage appropriate action. So we want a quick action, quick result, which we get from rapid testing in 30 minutes, Um, a quick action, which is the large proportion of people who are told they're positive isolating. Um, We've mentioned earlier that there is difficulty there for people on low incomes having enough support to isolate. And it's only those factors combined that will maximise the outcome I'm looking for, which is a reduced transmission of that virus.
1: Mm. So what is the kind of test performance for for a test that you can get the answer from very quickly? What is it that either you or other agencies or bodies have outlined as being sufficiently robust to be sort of worth it? Does does that... Magic number exist? Or...
3: <laughs> I hesitate to give a magic number. If we divide the population, those six thousand people we tested, we looked at the CT values and their PCR results, which indicates the load of virus that they uh, they have in the sample uh, that was taken at the time. And those with a higher viral load were more likely to be picked up by the lateral flow tests. Uh, Around 80% of those who, so what we would interpret as substantially infectious, but I can't put a precise figure on the infectiousness because those studies still need to be done to relate lateral flow positivity specifically to infectiousness, but we infer that from viral load. Uh, Estimates have been made maybe 7 out of ten, eight out of 10, eight out of 10 people who are substantially infectious, but times change. We've now got transmission at lower levels of virus with new variants, a large proportion of the population vaccinated. Younger people accounting for more transmission have a different pattern of symptoms. Uh, People who are reinfected will be infected at lower levels of virus. So it's a very complex situation to give a precise number on.
1: I wanted to pause Ian there, Joe, because I was so excited with this paper that it was going to give us a clear answer <laughs> about what to do. And he just highlighted, um, none of which are his fault, um, a whole load of uncertainties there about the variance um and the kind of the changing landscape of the number of people who are vaccinated and the um ebbing and flowing of how much disease is in the community. Such that it doesn't feel like this study about the diagnostic accuracy can actually give you the answer to um, everything, which is what which is kind of what I wanted. And it almost felt like you needed a trial of some kind, either in this circumstance of you know relative you know a surge of infection. Is it worth te- testing? Um, asymptomatic people to try and prevent transmission or reduce cases or reduce hospital admission, whatever outcome you picked, Um, or for these host of other questions which people are interested in, like is it worth me as a healthcare professional doing serial testing at home before I go to work? Does that protect me? Does that protect other people?
2: I don't know, Helen. I I feel like it gives you a very good answer. right?
1: Do you? Yeah.
2: It says go get your vaccine. Right, that, that's what this tells us. <laughs> that's that, that, not the answer I
1: wanted.
2: It tells you that diagnostic strategies to you know to test and control in a population are very complicated, really difficult, and you do them when there's no alternative to to managing an infectious disease. But we have actually a very clear alternative. You get the vaccine, right? And so, you know. The, but what I think this study does really well is it tells you how useful this tool is period right that that's a diagnostic accuracy study tells you how valuable this tool can be right i'll tell you one thing you guys at least on your side of the pond are using you know rapid antigen you know you know, rapid antigen test, We've been using thermal scanners to get into the grocery store and the gyms over in the United States, which are useless, right? <laughs> so uh, at least you're trying. <laughs> so you know, you get pretty useful results from this. You know, you get a sense that you know it's not perfectly sensitive. It gets you know maybe half, forty percent to half of cases of you know of asymptomatic infections. Clearly, the rules are different when you know people are symptomatic. And uh, it helps. Right. And every little bit helps. Right. Because the population of patients who are asymptomatic versus symptomatic is smaller. The population of asymptomatic patients who are infectious versus not that infectious is smaller. Right. And so it it's all of a varying gradient. And, you know, it, it it's probably useful for you know, if you have a lot of people getting on a, uh, you know, on a train for eight hours, and you want to prevent people from being exposed to one another, if they're going into a football stadium, it's probably useless because the risk of infection and transmission is so so low, anyways. But you know, it's it. I think it gives you a good sense of how the tool could work. I think what I
0: yeah, maybe that's enough. I think what I took from it um, was you have to think of these as being a public health intervention rather than a sort of individual diagnostic about your own, your own kind of
2: your own, health. Uh, as absolutely. Were.
1: And it was interesting because another one of the points that Ian was making and is made in the paper, one of the, out, one of the additional comparisons they make is the accuracy at, of lateral flow tests compared to different PCR cutoffs, these um, cycle times Um Because I guess what they're trying to say, if it's not picking up all the cases, um, if this sensitivity overall is not maybe as high as we would like, is it picking up the most infectious people? Um, So there's some sort of suggestion here that perhaps that's the case, but still quite a lot of uncertainty reflected in the paper about whether that is true um, and how that will hold, particularly in vaccinated populations where you're infectious and sort of viral levels may be lower. Um, so still quite a bit of uncertainty really around a lot of aspects of testing and understanding the um, nature of transmission, I suppose.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely because our understanding, you know we believe that viral load, which is you know a feature of the cycle time, right, is associated with transmissibility. But as the vi- as you know, we've seen in multiple of the variants, that they're more contagious, right? So so that affects the cycle time concept and threshold in terms of at what level would an asymptomatic person still be shedding enough virus that it's potentially uh, transmissible to make other people sick.
0: And it does feel like the kind of information that would be super useful to know, especially when trying to identify perhaps a variant of concern is that would help us define how much more transmissible it would be. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's we're also try, we're trying to hit a moving target, right? Because you know, the the virus keeps changing, you know, the the population risk keeps changing, the prevalence of the infection keeps changing. All all of these things affect you know how the accuracy of the test looks.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Right, we'll be back with some more evidence after this offer for Talk Evidence listeners.
1: As a healthcare professional, keeping up with the latest evidence-based medicine is more important now than ever before with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why BMJ Best Practice is free to all NHS staff in England, Scotland, and Wales. With fast access to the latest clinical guidance anywhere, anytime, BMJ Best Practice will enable you to treat patients with confidence. As well as COVID-19 treatments, you can access over a 1,000 topics across 32 clinical specialities with step-by-step guidance on diagnosis, prognosis, treatment and prevention, all structured around the patient consultation. To create your free account, visit bmj.com slash UK access. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. Getting... Back to your point, Duncan, about Freedom Day or whatever Mm -hmm. you so like to call it. Um, This testing is also relevant to that because one of the um, other projects that Ian's been involved in that I spoke with him about in addition was this UK events program. And I think we should come to that next.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, if you've been in the UK, Joe, you would have seen the football and the crowds of people and uh i think that's a a question on everyone's lips like how how do events affect uh affect covid transmission and the course of this pandemic.
1: Have you heard of this program, Jay?
2: Very, very little. Very, very little.
1: Okay, I think we should take you as the bar for anyone that's outside the UK. So we'll assume that nobody knows anything about it. (laughs) And here's my 30-second attempt to bring you up to speed. So apologies for any gross sweeping statements or inaccuracies that's introduced in me trying to do that. Um, But this is a program that um, sort of the documentation online begins around March 2020 on this. It's quite sprawling, so I've pieced this together from various locations, but um, the overarching question here is trying to understand or the government trying to understand, um, is there evidence of increased risk of transmission from events and what aspects of events are likely to contribute towards transmission? So whether that's to do with the venue, like whether it's outdoors, or whether it's indoors, whether it's um, about... How people flow through the event, um, looking at different seating options, whether you're sitting down or standing up, um, where the bathroom facilities are and how you use them, whether there's alcohol on sale, what time of day the event is, um, this whole variety of environmental and behavioral kind of features um, and also looking uh, at the use of lateral flow testing around those events, particularly as a way to kind of enable you to go to the event, because you're producing evidence that either on the day or very close to the day of the event, you have a negative lateral flow test. And over here, they've been looking at a whole variety of events, which they're calling pilot pilot events. Um, some of them are business events like conferences. Um, they've also looked at sports events. Um, they did a sports events at Sorry, they did a sports event at Wembley Stadium with social distancing, slightly different to the one that Duncan was, I think, referring to <laughs> the, uh, the Euros uh, final there, which did look very busy. Um, they've done music festivals, uh, the Brit Awards, uh, five kilometre running race, uh, snooker competitions, a whole whole variety of indoor and outdoor events. Most of them were small. And at the time that they were running in in the spring in the UK, sort of tailored end of the winter into the spring, um, they estimated that given that you were going to have to do a negative lateral flow to get to this event, perhaps about one in 800 people going to the events might have been testing um, positive. The way that these are set up, um, it's not really a trial situation as such. They're sort of more pilots. So there's no control groups. Um, the nature of the population that you're drawing on in some of these events is easier to characterize than others. Um, So kind of causal inferences here are going to be quite tricky. Um, And the numbers involved um, also make it quite difficult. So they did anticipate trying to do some pooling of data to come to some overall answer about whether there was increased transmission. Although I think in the reporting of now, what are the results of the phase one pilots, that's been somewhat downplayed. I don't think anyone's um, making much comment on that and and more looking for um, suggestions, I guess, on how events should be run going forward. So there's not crystallized kind of policy recommendations that come out of the document, which is now reporting these um, findings online, or certainly not, not ones that I could see. Um, I guess people might have been looking for things like how many people per meter squared is it okay to have indoors how much airflow do you need do you really need to be wearing masks in certain situations but um Ian as i say who i spoke with earlier was involved in one of these pilots at a liverpool nightclub and spoke to me a bit more about it so let's let's hear what he said Ian can you just begin by telling us what uncertainty we had around the contribution of events to spread and what this events program was was broadly set up to look at
3: uh, the events program was part of the bigger program with its origins in community testing really asking for greater clarity uh, around unpicking the uncertainties in tests to protect the mass testing removing risk from a general population test to release from quarantine a very targeted indirect harm of COVID and test to enable return to restricted activities that are important for mental health, for social fabric, and local economies. Half of Liverpool's economy depends on events, visitors, and hospitality, and that's a lot of jobs, a lot of security, a lot of indirect harms that I have to take in the round as a public health physician, cognizant of the WHO definition as health. The complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being—not merely the absence of disease or infirmity.
1: So this was looking Um, at a world where, which was ostensibly back to normal in terms of the functioning of the events. Once you got there, there were no additional um, measures that people had to take. It was just do do your test um, beforehand, and let's follow up and see what happens afterwards.
3: Yes. And and the only reasonable, arguably the only ethical way of running that research was to run the events in a way that they could be sustained. Otherwise, the evidence couldn't be put into practice. And Mm -hmm. that would be a dishonest promise to the public who wanted those events back. They had to be run realistically. And realistic includes selling alcohol, because the venues don't make enough money to stay open unless they sell alcohol. They had to reach a certain capacity to break even. Um, so Liverpool chose because of its low rates of SARS-CoV-2 at the time and a very detailed data system that allowed contact tracing to happen even before the events had opened. The people were called if there were a contact of a lateral flow positive um, to ask, are you thinking of going to that event? We don't have information on you, but please don't go. Uh, so A lot of activity happened to contain any potential outbreaks. And uh, the outcome was that there were no substantial outbreaks, certainly uh, beyond that which we expected uh, to be able to contain. So there were no uncontained outbreaks. But it took a and lot of that... work.
1: Yeah, I was going to say... And... You mentioned you wanted the events to sort of be realistic. Is that follow-up, that, that extra scrutiny that that the events generated, is that realistic going the forward? The capacity
3: has to be there in the contact tracing service. So at the moment when the service is incredibly busy dealing with the delta wave, uh, no, that capacity isn't available now. Uh, when it becomes available, uh, I think my my colleagues in public health teams will be more comfortable about having similar conversations with the event organisers to put the right measures in place, depending on on what they're free to do, um, to meet the needs. Because of there that is surely a
1: challenge coming once once things are freed up uh, in July, and we're sort of operating on a on a back to normal um, basis, and we've got the the wave of infection that we have now, albeit um, not leading to. The serious consequences for health systems at the moment, but there is a kind of tension there um, in what you've described in the capacity of public health, surely at, at this moment in time.
3: But we're also in a different position with regards to the high circulating levels of, of neutralising antibodies in the population, and the coverage of vaccination has moved on uh, quite a lot. Hopefully it will move on even further. Uh, particularly into uh, deprived areas that are a a great Mm. challenge at the moment. We'll have equitable vaccination of the public health services to meet the needs of those communities holistically. And uh, There's a huge pressure for Mm. the return of social fabric from live events.
1: As I read through the documents for the events programme, two sort of key aims struck me. One was around quantifying um or not quantifying i'll rephrase that um two aims struck me one was around um understanding the risk posed by um events and it wasn't clear to me reading it whether that could fully be answered by the events program it was it was a bit mixed um it seemed that that was an ambition But at the same time, the case numbers, whilst the programme was running, were were very low. And there seemed to be some ambiguity as to whether that question could be rounded off. Um, Do you feel that that was answered or does that remain unknown?
3: The transmission risk as an event? No. Uh, It would be uh, impossible to quantify that uncertainty properly uh, without having every event run connected to the kind of data systems that are in place in Liverpool and drawing audiences from a well-defined uninstrumented population, uh, and instrumented population and case rates being higher to see any greater contrasts, uh, arguably, it would be unethical to run that kind of pilot uh, at higher levels of infection. So the responsible thing to do was to test whether the risk mitigation measures were feasible. Could you deploy testing practically? Mm. Would people declare symptoms? And there's very Mm. important learning.
1: That second thing was the other aim that struck me, that this kind of feasibility element. And did you feel that that was um, answered well, either by your pilot or some of the others in the programme, if if you're aware of them, in terms of... um, whether people are willing to engage with this kind of activity to test before and to um, follow up more vigilantly afterwards.
3: Yes, it was very practical learning. Uh, Over the Easter weekend, there were lots of media stories about fear of vaccine passports. and um, I even received death threats. I said, how dare you be doing these events, research programmes that might introduce vaccine passports? And that was not the intention. In fact, that was one of the research questions to work with the audiences, say, how would you feel about being asked to declare your vaccination status? And 75% of the audiences said they had no problem with that at all. Uh, for those who did, there's an alternative if you could get one or more tests before the event. We now have a greater proportion of the pac- vac- population vaccinated. And ideally, we would concentrate the testing on the unvaccinated or the partially mm-hmm. vaccinated as close to the event as possible. Uh, 48 hours before is, is far too long. But mm-hmm. You're not going to pick up enough individuals, particularly as, as lateral flow uh, is is less sensitive in the very early phases, so on the first day of someone becoming infectious. So you and did you get, get a sense
1: of whether people sort of treated it responsibly or did... did... Did people sort of want to falsify their, their test results? Was it, was it adhered to in a, in a responsible way, I guess?
3: Generally, but there were a few cases that we picked up by asking people afterwards. There's a lot of detective work on each case. There was one case where someone who'd got a positive lateral flow test went again to try and get a negative lateral flow test. I didn't really understand the nature of that. There were people who admitted that they had symptoms and um, didn't declare that. The symptom definition has now changed in a partially vaccinated population. that a, a headache, um, feeling particularly tired, malaise, a week, could be important signs of being infected with SARS-CoV-2. And as we head into the winter, it would be very difficult to tell the difference between Uh, other viruses and SARS-CoV-2 infections. So asking people if they feel even vaguely unwell not to go to an event requires specific communication from the events organisers, from the local public health team, multiple channels to build the best possible risk mitigation. So that practical learning was incredibly important.
1: So, Dunk, you asked me about Freedom Day, (laughs) (laughs) and I thought this was quite interesting from that respect, because what really struck me and what I've reflected on since I talked to Ian was how much effort went into planning and executing and organising those events um, and following up and the level of scrutiny that was needed by the public health team and the kind of close working of people organising an event and the health services and I'm just really struck by how that will work now whether there there is any obligation um for events organisers and um public health to continue that kind of partnership and and whether people will see value in the work that was that was done here really
0: yeah I mean it's extraordinary they linked the kind of ticketing information to public health records in a way that, you know, I'm thinking back to what you were talking about last time, Helen, about, you know, people worrying about their data and, and questions about, about those things. So there, there are lots of other layers of, of stuff going on here. And, um, you know, Ian was at pains to point out that they wanted the test within the event to be as realistic as possible, you know, selling alcohol and people being disinhibited by that and, and everything else. But then, as you say, that public health environment around the test was certainly not. It doesn't feel very realistic to me. No, exactly. Maybe
1: I'm being pessimistic. I don't know. Joe, Do how, how does it feel from a US perspective? Is this, is this kind of stuff happening with you?
2: Not that I'm aware of. Not, not at all. They're not doing testing going into events like this. It, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, it's sort of, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place, right? Every, everyone's trying to do their best to give a sense of what the potential risks might be. I'm not sure that the work like this is really pushing the field any farther forward than what we know, right? You know, being in an outdoor space, you know, where there's more airflow, risk is lower. Being in an indoor space where people are crowded together is higher risk. And, you know, whether or not our people are queuing up to order a beer um, at the stadium yeah i don't i don't think that's going to really guide us you know like i said before get vaccinated right like low, that lowers your risk and you know all this other stuff is a lot of hand waving and if you're concerned that you're in an environment where you're you know the risk might be higher you know wear a mask i'm sorry I, I i just feel like i mean a lot of this was what we needed to do before there were vaccines right that's the that's the challenge um but now It's really much more simple.
0: Yeah, I mean, that feels really true that um, this was all questions that we wanted answered. A year ago, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I suppose they were harder to answer a year ago, weren't they? Because, you know, I guess we were sort of in in lockdown then. Um, But yes, I suppose events events pilots could have been done sooner. I think another area of interest would be... um, the running of of sort of healthcare events in a way, you know, the areas where where people are gathered in connection to receiving their healthcare, um, looking at waiting rooms and in hospitals and primary care clinics. I think that's the other area. As we're aware that a lot of routine care has been on hold, and now we need to get it moving. Um, and we know so much of that first wave of infection was perhaps contributed to by um by healthcare itself. Um in some ways the spotlight that's on events um feels a little bit unfair. <laughs> um you know, the I do the healthcare system need to look at themselves a little bit harder and think how how are we doing in terms of our ventilation and should we be adjusting the way that we run our clinics or structure our appointment systems to, to mean that we are not introducing unnecessary risk?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I suppose when you think about the populations who attend a healthcare clinic versus those that attend, you know, uh a big like dance event, then yeah, you know, the risk profiles for those people are different when it comes to mortality and things and um speaking of mortality uh joe you've got a paper to tell us about um which is looking at that
1: uh we've been very uk centric haven't we now we get to be very us centric and i said to joe i felt in this paper it was posed as a paper that was interested in multiple countries, but I felt really they were only interested in the U.S. <laughs>
2: well, it, it, it's only using those other countries as a way to p- provide a benchmark for how we're doing yes, in the yes, U.S. Yes, that's right? true. It's just true. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you know, this is this is not the only paper like this. There have actually been a handful of papers that have tried to use this kind of population, uh, like mortality statistic databases to understand the impact of the pandemic on life expectancy, right? I mean, everyone, you know, in all of these communities around the world, we've seen so many people die prematurely. And the question is, well, you know, what does this mean at the population level? There's been some excellent studies, including ones that we've published in the BMJ that have looked across the world. This one in particular, though, what I liked about it is, yes, it was focused on the US. That's not why I liked it. But what I really appreciated about it is that it tried to dig in and look uh, at Um, by socio-demographic variables, you know, by the population, race, and ethnicity. What's happening in the U.S.? I mean, obviously, in the U.S., you know, there's rampant racism, you know, communities of color are often disadvantaged and have less access to resources. And they're also the same people who are, uh, you know, because of poverty, living in more full households. And so they were more at risk of getting infected and experiencing the burden of this disease. And so... What this shows is actually they look at population health data between first between 2010 and 2018 to see what's happening in the US relative to peer countries. And um, actually uh, things weren't going well even then, right? In the United States, you know, at, in 2010, we were uh, just a shade under two years living less, two years less longer than these other peer countries. But by 2018, it was now three years. Um, and then, you know, they looked at between 2018 and then 2020 to account for the, you know, to look at the impact of the pandemic, and found that that gap increased now from three years to more than four and a half years. And, you know, so that this decrease in life expectancy in the United States was eight and a half times greater in the U.S. compared to to these peer countries. So clearly. We did not do well. We did not manage our population health well. And we you know, experienced really terrible burden of disease. But worse among that is when you sort of dig down, you see that the communities of color experienced most of that loss or a disproportionate amount of loss. So um, the, the gap uh, from eighteen to 2018 to 2020 was almost four years in the Hispanic communities, just over three years among non-Hispanic Blacks. Uh, but only a shade over a year loss of life expectancy among non-Hispanic whites. So clearly further evidence of inequities and disparities in the U.S. digging deeper into the problems that we have in you know, taking care of our people.
0: Joe, in that I'm struck by the, the change before COVID there, um, was U.S. life expectancy actually dropping by a year or were the other countries pulling even further? You know, they were increasing their um, life expectancy, but the U.S. was, was holding steady.
2: Yeah, w- well, both were actually living longer. The U.S. went from like 78.7 years to 80.5, whereas in peer countries it went from 78 seven to 81.8 years. So what happened was all of you are living longer. You're, you're taking better care of yourselves, using medications more appropriately, you know following public health measures more clearly. And you know one of the big biggest causes of premature death in the United States is, is opioid overdose that so we have a huge problem with that in the United States. so, so, so our, the gap was growing even though both groups, both populations were living longer.
1: While you were talking, Jo, um, you mentioned two things, using medications better um, and prescription. Well, you mentioned opioids, which made me think of prescription of opioids and other general controlled substances. And I found two little snippets to share with readers, um, which uh, which at least one of these you remember quite well, the OPERAM trial, which, which came out just recently on BMJ. Um, and to cut a very long story short, it's probably very dubious to try and sum a research paper in a sentence
2: you're you're like you're you're (laughs) tweeting it out to your listeners you're tweeting
1: it out read this is a tweet and then you a, a verbal tweet and then you have to go and read the full paper but in essence it was looking at if you use fancy software programs amongst people that were being admitted into hospital um for a whole variety of reasons and you did a medication review on them did it reduce the chance that they would then go on to have um, a medication-related admission at a later stage? Stage? At a later stage. And the short answer is no, it doesn't. Um, Which isn't to say that people shouldn't do medication reviews in hospital. But it did to me, I remember when I read it, feel like at all the points in a patient's journey when you might intervene to try and either... um, increase prescribing appropriately or decrease things which are maybe less indicated um, in the patient's condition um just as you were being admitted with this sort of slightly unstable situation anyway and maybe being reviewed by people who don't know you particularly well um this didn't on the surface of it seem like a great light um as a way forward but <laughs> you know
2: it's a, it's a great trial i mean the outcomes they used you know a hospital a drug related hospital admission or death, those are hard outcomes to change. Don't lose fact like uh don't don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, almost ninety percent of people uh had an inappropriate medication prescribed, you know, that, that was picked up by this program. So we, we may not be able to avert deaths uh through but there's still ways to improve prescribing and, and take better care of patients.
1: Yes. That is a more cheerful interpretation mm-hmm. of the paper. Maybe I was a bit deembley there. Um, <laughs> yes. And then the, <laughs> the other one, I don't think we got an answer to this one, was about Was about back pain and a, and a paper reviewing um, the uh, benefit and harm of muscle relaxants, which I would sort of summarize as largely benzodiazepines, Um which found that we really don't have very good evidence to answer that question, um, which, again, sort of inherently feels like not a very good prescribing idea to me, although um, I can probably think of a handful of occasions when I was practicing that I I did do it mostly for patients who had said they'd had it before and it worked very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any fresh consultations I didn't even necessarily put it on the table but i don't know what you made of this well
2: i mean this is a great great study to prompt you know our our public sector our governments to fund a good research study because you know managing pain is so difficult and you know for some people there you know there's this anecdotal evidence that benzos and other muscle relaxants really do help. They take that pain intensity down and it allows people to get into physical therapy and feel better. And, you know, what we see here is, you know, there's been a lot of kind of small crappy trials as, you know, as the moniker goes and it would be great to get one good one.
0: So uh, a quick whiz through some of the uh, stuff that's on bmj.com and elsewhere this week Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this programme, we'll be back again in another month with more from the world of evidence you'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts from so uh, subscribe so you don't miss out on your next dose of EBM so the last thing to say is, it's a goodbye from me
1: goodbye from me
2: I hope you both are enjoying your freedom. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye from me.
0: Thanks, Joe. (laughs) Uh, Take care out there.